starting now. Black Clock Audio Tales, May 2019, Hawaiian Folklore and Legends, edited by Daniel Spitzer, music by Kevin McLeod. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to a rate podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button on pgttcm.podbean.com or by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And don't forget to visit pgttcm.com. Brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their new Dino Sound Slippers. Is that the name? They roar every third step. Very cool. Uni, the Peasant Prince of Hawaii, Part 3. It was not destined that Umi should remain long unknown among the hills of Hilo. His sudden disappearance and continued absence from the court had excited apprehensions of foul dealing, and Haku himself, who had thus far failed in his efforts to discover the retreat of Umi, began to fear that he was somewhere secretly planning a deep scheme of retaliation. But Umi had as yet marked out for himself no definite plan of action. He smarted under the persecutions of Haku and did not doubt that, sooner or later, he would triumph over them and be restored to the rights and privileges bequeathed to him by his royal father. But exactly when and how all this was to be accomplished were problems which he expected the future to assist him in solving. And he was not disappointed. The future for which he had patiently waited was near at hand, and he was about to become the central figure of a struggle which would test to their utmost his courage and ability. One day, while strolling along in the hills back of Waipuna Lay, there suddenly appeared before him a man of stupendous proportions. Umi regarded the object for a moment with amazement, and was about to speak when the monster dropped on his knees before him. In that position he was a head and shoulders above Umi, and the spear in his hand was of the measure in length of ten full steps. Although more than eleven feet in height, he was well proportioned, and the expression of his face was intelligent and gentle. He was young in years, yet his hair fell to his shoulders and was streaked with gray. "'Who are you, and why do you kneel to me?' said Umi, looking up into the face of the giant with a feeling of awe. If I had your limbs, I would kneel alone to the gods. I am Makaleoleo of Kona, and the most unfortunate of men, replied the monster, in a ponderous but not unpleasant tone. My mother was New Healy, but she is now dead, and, having grown to the height of the trees, I live in the mountains among them, for men seem to fear and hate me, and women and children scream with fright at my approach. 
And who was your father? inquired Umi kindly. As he died when I was young, returned the giant, and that was more than thirty years ago, I know not, except that his name was Mano, and that he claimed lineage from Kaihaukapu, the grandfather of the great Leola, whose unworthy son now rules in Hawaii. Hist! exclaimed Umi, reaching up and placing his hand gently upon the shoulder of the monster. There is death in such words, even to a man of Maukaleoleo's girth. The trees are listeners as well as myself. The trees will say nothing, was the reply, for they often hear such words of Haku. But why should I fear death? I was not born to be slain for speaking the truth. Listen, and then tell me why Makaleoleo should fear anything that is human. When a boy, a stranger, met me one day on the cliffs overlooking the sea, where I was searching for the feathers of the oo, he was mighty in stature, and in fear I fell upon the ground and hid my face. He called me by name, and I looked up and saw that he held in his hand a small fish of the color of the skies at sunset. Handing the fish to me, he said, Eat this, and to see your face all men will look toward the stars. I knew he was a god, Kanaloa, perhaps, and I feared to refuse. So I took the fish and ate it, and the stranger stepped over the cliffs with a smile on his face and disappeared. The fish was pleasant to the taste, and I could have eaten more. A strange sense of increasing strength seized me, and on my way home I lifted large rocks and felt that I could uproot trees. I said nothing to my mother of what had happened, but the next morning she looked at me with fright and wonder, for during the night I had grown an arm's length in height. Except upon my hands and knees, I could no longer enter the door of the house where I was born, and everything with which I was familiar had a dwarfed and unnatural look. I was ashamed to meet my old associates, and only ventured from the house when it was too dark for me to be plainly seen. Larger and larger I grew, until at the age of fifteen I reached my present proportions. When my mother died, and I made my home in the mountains, where I have since spent the most of my time. What should one so treated by the gods fear from man? And Maukaleoleo rose to his feet, towering like a coca tree above his companion. A strange story indeed, but if the trees which are speechless do not betray you, why should not I? said Umi, curious to learn something farther of the strange being in whose veins possibly coursed the blood of kings. Because, 
answered the giant slowly. You are Umi, the son of Leola, and Haku is your enemy. Umi listened to these words in amazement, and then frankly said, You are right. I am Umi, the son of Leola, and Haku is not my friend. And now that you know so much, you cannot but also know that it is prudent for me to remain at present unknown. Let me ask in return that you will not betray me. I know all, and you may fear nothing, said Makaleolio. Before the moon grows large again, I shall be with you, spear in hand, on your way to Waipio. Meanwhile, you may lose sight of me, but I shall be near you when my arm is needed. You have powerful friends. Be guided by them, and all will be well. Umi held up his hand, and Makaleolio folded it in his mighty palm as he dropped upon his knees and exclaimed, Umi, son of Leoa, here in the hills among the listening leaves, let Makaleolio be the first to hail you Moi of Hawaii. Before Umi could rebuke the untimely utterance, Makaleolio rose to his feet and with a low bow disappeared among the trees. With whatever feeling of fear, the Makaimana, or laboring classes, of Waipuna lay may have regarded Makaleolio as he occasionally appeared among them like a moving tower. He was not without friends. He was well known to the priests and Kaluas of the district, who believed that his huge proportions were due to the special act of some god, and was always a welcome visitor at the home of Kaoleoku, a high priest of great influence both in Hilo and Hamakua. It is therefore probable that this meeting with Umi was not entirely accidental. For the day following, Kawalikoku dispatched a messenger to Umi, who was found not without some difficulty, inviting him to a conference in a secluded spot near the head of a neighboring valley. The object of the meeting was not stated, and Umi's first thought was that the emissaries of his brother were seeking to lure him to his death. But no danger ever appalled him, and, seizing his javelin and thrusting a pahoa into his girdle, he followed the messenger. A brisk walk of an hour brought them to a small grass hut, partially hidden among the trees and undergrowth of an almost dry ravine abruptly jutting into the valley. At that point, the valley was too narrow to admit of cultivation. Although a broken stone wall across the mouth of the ravine showed that at one time three or four uneven acres behind it had been tilled, the grass grew rank within the enclosure, 
and in addition to several varieties of forest trees that had taken root since the ground had last been disturbed, a half dozen or more coca trees lifted their heads above the surrounding foliage, and the broad leaves of as many banana stalks swayed lazily in the wind. It was a lonesome-looking spot, and no sign of life in or around the hut was visible as the messenger stopped at a gap in the crumbling wall and awaited the approach of Umi. The chirp of the crickets in the grass seemed to be a note of warning, and the whistle of a solitary bird hidden among the leaves sounded like a scream to Umi in that deserted and otherwise silent nook. But he grasped his ahi firmly and beckoned the messenger to proceed. As he stepped over the broken wall, he caught a glimpse of the ponderous form of Maokaleo Leo through the branches of a sandal tree on the side of the hill overlooking the hut. Under the eye of that mighty and friendly sentinel, Umi dismissed all thought of treachery or danger. Reaching the door of the hut, he was met by the high priest, Keoleoku, who promptly extended his hand and invited him to enter, while the messenger withdrew from the enclosure and took a position where he commanded a view of the valley above and below the mouth of the ravine. There was no furniture in the hut beyond two or three rickety shelves, and on one side a raised platform of earth, which, with a kappa covering, might have been used either as a bed or seat. On entering, the priest requested Umi to be seated, and then bowed low and said, I cannot doubt that I am standing before Umi, son of Leoa, and guardian of our sacred temples and our father's gods. To these words the priest silently awaited an answer. Umi did not reply at once, but after giving the face of the priest a searching glance, and recalling his meeting with Maokaleoleo the day before, and the vision through the branches of the sandal tree, he frankly answered, I cannot deny it. No, you cannot, indeed, returned the priest fervently. For so have the clouds told me, and so has it been whispered in my dreams. Word has come to me from Waipio that Hakau knows you are in Waipuna Lei, and his emissaries are already here with orders to assassinate you. Then further disguise would be useless, further delay cowardly, exclaimed Umi, rising from his seat and grasping his ihi. His cruelty forces me at last to strike. The time for action has come, and spear in hand, as befits a son of Liloa, I will face the royal murderer in Waipio and the black kappa shall be his or mine. Spoken like a king and a son of a king, returned the priest with enthusiasm.
grasping Umi by the hand. But you will not go alone. Come to me with your friends tomorrow, if possible tonight. Under my roof you will be safe, and there we will gather the spears that will make your journey to Waipio a triumphal march. Thanks are the only payment I can now make to your friendship, said Umi, in turn pressing the hand of the priest. You may expect me and a few of my friends before another rising of the sun. With a few hasty words of explanation, Umi left the hut with his heart on fire, and the priest watched him with a smile until he passed the broken wall. There he was rejoined by the messenger, who silent preceded him down the valley. As he started to return, Umi looked toward the sandal tree above the hut. Maokaleo Leo was no longer there, but he frequently discerned a mighty form moving down the valley along the wooded hillside and knew that his great friend was not far away. The northeastern coast of the island of Hawaii presents an almost continuous succession of valleys, with intervening uplands rising gently for a few miles, and then more abruptly toward the snows of Mauna Kea and the clouds. The rains are abundant on the side of the island, and the fertile plateau boldly fronting the sea with a line of fine cliffs from 50 to 100 feet in height is scored at intervals of one or two miles with deep and almost impassable gulches whose waters reach the ocean either through rocky channels worn to the level of the waves or in cascades leaping from the cliffs and streaking the coast from Hilo to Waipio with lines which seem to be of molten silver from the great crucible of Kilauea. In the time of Leola and later, this plateau was thickly populated and requiring no irrigation, was cultivated from the sea upward to the line of frost. A few callow patches are still seen, and bananas grow, as of old, in secluded spots and along the banks of the ravines, but the broad acres are green with cane, and the whistle of the sugar mill is heard above the roar of the surf that beats against the rock-bound front of Hamakua. In the first of these valleys south of Waipuna Lei was the estate of the high priestess Kawalioku, which was thickly dotted with the huts of his tenants, and embraced some of the finest banana, cocoa, and breadfruit groves in the district. For the accommodation of himself and family were two large mansions, constructed of heavy timbers and surrounded by a substantial stone wall. The priest was learned and hospitable, and his influence was second in the district only to that of the Ali Okani. 
Anticipating the arrival of Umi and his friends during the night, the priest had placed a watchman at the gate on retiring, with instructions to wake him should anyone unknown to the sentinel apply for admission before morning. But Keoleoku could not sleep, for his mind was filled with the shadows of coming events. He had discovered a son of Liloa, the rightful guardian of the temples and his gods, secreted among the Makanimani to escape the persecutions of his tyrannical and heartless brother, and as a reconciliation between them did not seem to be possible, he had resolved to urge Umi into open revolt at once, and to assist him to the full extent of his power in organizing a force to contest with Haku the right to the sovereignty of Hawaii. This he was moved to do, not more because Haku was a tyrant than that he had sought to degrade the priesthood, of which Umi was the nominal head and in the dedication of a temple in Waimea, he had sacrilegiously usurped the powers and privileges of the high priest. Should the revolt prove unsuccessful, his life, he well knew, would be one of the forfeits of the failure. But the priest was a courageous man, and did not hesitate to accept the hazard of the perilous undertaking. Although reared in the priesthood, he could wield a spear with the best, and when in arms his fifty years sat lightly upon him. With his mind filled with the details of the dangerous labors before him, the priest tossed restlessly upon his couch of kappa until past midnight, when he rose and strolled out among the palms. Wearied with walking, he stretched himself upon the grass, and fanned by the trade winds and soothed by the stars, which seemed to smile upon him through the branches of the trees, he followed his troubled thoughts into the land of dreams, and there a voice said to him thrice, let the spears of Haku be sent beyond the call of the Kia Pu, and the victory of Umi will be bloodless. A voice beside the sleeper awoke him, and he was informed by the watchman that a considerable number of strangers were at the gate and desired admission. The priest rose to his feet and with the mysterious words of the dream still ringing in his ears, proceeded to the gate, where the tall form of Umi loomed up in the darkness. Giving him his hand with a warm word of welcome, the priest was about to conduct him within when he was startled at the sudden appearance at the gate of a party of armed and resolute-looking men how many he was unable to distinguish. The priest was about to speak when Umi laid his hand upon his shoulder and said in a low voice, 
all trusty friends. Then all are welcome, replied the priest, and giving an order to the watchman, he stepped aside with Umi when two hundred warriors, appareled for battle, silently filed in double rank through the opening, following Omakamau and Pimaiwa to quarters evidently prepared for a much greater number. Truly a good beginning, exclaimed the priest with enthusiasm as the last of the little army passed the gate. A few that my good friends have been sounding since yesterday, said Umi modestly. They do not know me yet as Umi, but are inspired with a hatred for Haku. The number could have been greatly increased, but I feared your ability to accommodate more without warning. It was thoughtful, but ten times their number can be secreted within these walls. But come, continued the priest, taking the arm of Umi and proceeding toward the larger mansion. There is red in the east, and you must have rest and sleep. When you awake, I will give you a dream to interpret. It relates to the business before us. Tell me of the dream before I sleep, good Kaolioku, urged Umi pleasantly, and perhaps some god may whisper an answer to it in my slumbers. Well thought, replied the priest, and he related his dream to Umi as he conducted him to a room in the large hail and pointed to a pile of soft kappa on a low platform. The priest bowed and retired, and Umi, who had rested but little for three days, threw himself upon the kappa mo and slept soundly until the sun was high in the heavens. The young chief awoke greatly refreshed, and, after his morning bath, sought the presence of the priest, who since daylight had been busily engaged in dispatching messengers to his friends in various parts of the district, and even to Puna and Hamakau, and arranging for supplies of arms, provisions, and other warlike stores. Against the walls of the enclosure, a number of long sheds had been hastily constructed, under which, screened from observation from without, men were repointing spears and ehes, and repairing slings, daggers, and other weapons. In fact, the enclosure began to assume the appearance of a military camp rather than the peaceful habitation of a priest. And as Umi looked around him, he appreciated for the first time that a step had been taken which could not be retraced, and that the lives of himself and many of his friends could be saved alone by destroying Haikau, in whose heart lived no feeling of mercy. But as the conflict had been forced upon him, he accepted it without fear or regret, and his courage would not permit him to doubt the result. 
Umi greeted and thanked the priest for the warlike preparations visible on all sides, and over their morning meal together were discussed the resources and details of the coming struggle. It was not believed that a sufficient force could be rallied in the district to make head against the battalions of the king in open fight, for news of the ripening rebellion was spreading in the neighborhood and would soon reach Waipio. What we lack in spears must be made up in cunning, said the priest confidently. The gods are with us, and the means of victory will be pointed out. Perhaps, replied Umi thoughtfully, but sometimes the direction is vague and we are apt to mistake it. Olopana failed to interpret correctly the will of Cain, as sent to him through his high priest, and was driven by the floods from Waipio and compelled to return to Kahiki, the land of his fathers. True, returned the priest, not a little astonished at Umi's knowledge of the ancient chiefs of Hawaii, and we must not fall into the same error. The gods perhaps have already spoken. Let the spears of Haku be sent beyond the call of the Kiapu, are the words that have come to me, but I can find no interpretation of them. We must make sacrifice at once and consult the Kaulas. That would be well, said Umi, yet it may be that a hint of their meaning, if nothing more, has been sent to me. I slept with the words this morning, you will remember, and now I recall that a whisper advised that we should take to our council Nunu and Kakohi of Waipio. You have made the way clear, exclaimed the priest earnestly. I know the men well. They are priests of influence and large learning. They were the advisors of the Loa and are now the enemies of Haikau. The same, said Umi. I have met them both. Then we will dispatch a discreet messenger for them at once, returned the priest, rising abruptly. Every moment is precious, and their counsel may be the voice of the gods. And now, while the messenger is on his way to Waipio, it may be in place to make some further mention of the two priests in search of whom he was sent as they contributed in no small measure to Umi's final success, and were thereafter rated among his confidential counselors. Nunu and Keikohi were chiefs of distinction and belonged to the priesthood. They were both learned in the lore of the gods and the traditions of the people, and were so highly esteemed by Liloa that he frequently invited them to the royal mansion, and late in life spent one or more evenings with them in each month. 
when he listened to recitals of the traditions of his fathers, and mistier lines of demigods, and heroes stretching backward in unbroken thread to the morning of creation. They were among the few who could recite the sacred genealogical melee of Kumu Honua, the Hawaiian Adam, and he loved to listen to the naming of the generations from the first man to Nu of the great flood, and thence to Waikia, and downward still nearly sixty generations to himself, some differences existing between the genealogies of Hawaii and Maui, Leola had sent them to the latter island to confer with its priests and historians, with the view of reconciling their disagreements. Their mission was successful, and what is known as the Ulu genealogy was the result of the learned conference. These were among the friends of Liloa, who, for the sake of the father and the honor of the royal line, had patiently and earnestly sought to divert Hakau from his barbarous practices. But he had scorned their kind offices, made light of their learning, and finally denied them admission to the palace. He hoped by his cruelty to drive them from Waipio, but in the prophetic flames they had read their future, and from within the sacred anu of the temple voices had come to them enjoining patience, so they sat down and waited. Arriving at Waipio, the messenger of Kaolioku had but little difficulty in finding the two priests of whom he was in search. It was some hours after nightfall, but on inquiry he was directed to their humble dwelling on the south side of the stream, and soon stood at their door. It was dark within, and on making his presence known, two men appeared at the opening. The messenger saluted them politely, and observing but a single person, they cautiously stepped from the door and inquired of the visitor his business with them. By their garb and bearing he knew them to be priests, but that was not enough. He could afford to make no mistake, so he dissembled and said, I have probably been misinformed. This is not the house of Monana, the fisherman. My friend, said Numnu, your words do not mislead us. Whether for good or evil, I know not. But you are in search of Kahui and Nunu, and they are here. If you have business with them, speak. There are no listeners. The messenger answered by unfolding from a piece of kappa an ivory talisman carved from a whale's tooth, which he handed to Nunu with a request that he would examine it. Stepping to a fire still smoldering near the oven of the hut, the priest threw 
upon it a handful of dry bark, which in a moment burst into a flame and enabled him to inspect the palaoa. Returning, addressing a few words to his companion, the priest said to the messenger, I am from Kailiaoku of Waipunalei, reported the messenger, bowing. How long since? inquired the priest. Late this morning, was the answer. You must have traveled swiftly, for the paths are rough and the distance is a long day's journey, suggested the priest cautiously. My feet have known no rest, was the brief reply. What news bring you of Kaoleoku? None. Then why are you here with this paloa? Because so commanded by Kaoleoku. There are rumors of coming troubles on the borders of Hamakua. Has Kaoleoku sent you to tell us of them? I am here to say nothing of Kaoleku, but to say for him, and to say only, that he prays that Nunu and Kaiohi will meet him under his own roof at Waiopunalei without delay. And nothing more? Nothing more. You are discreet. I am simply the bearer of a message, and now that I have delivered it, I am waiting for such answer as you may desire to send back with me to Kaoleoku. When will you return? Tonight. Then tell Kaoleku that his friends Nunu and Kaokehi will be with him by this time tomorrow. Now come, continued the priest. There is meat in the mua, and you must eat for there is a wearying journey before you. The messenger was led into an adjoining hut, where meat and poi were set before him, and half an hour after he was scaling the hills east of the valley of Waipio. Although the messenger was silent, the priest felt assured that there was a gathering of spears in the neighborhood of Waipunalei, and that Keoleoku was secretly inciting a revolt. They knew that Umi was somewhere among the hills of Hilo, and felt strong in hoping that at the proper time he would be found at the head of the movement. Haikau had very much underrated the power of the priesthood, and did not discover until too late that, in seeking to persecute and degrade Umi, who had been given charge of the gods and temples by Liu, he had provoked the hostility of a class which at the period of Hawaiian history no sovereign could safely defy. If the taboos of the moi were sacred, those of the high priests were none the less invaluable, and the strongest chiefs in the group were those who held in greatest respect and enjoyed the largest friendship of the priesthood. Like the temporal rulers, the priests inherited their functions, 
and were as jealous of their prerogatives as royalty itself. It was through them that the civil as well as the religious traditions of the people had been brought down and perpetuated. And through their prayers and sacrifices only that the gods could be persuaded to accord success to important undertakings. In the veins of some of the priests ran royal blood, and from time to time they left their ewes and became distinguished as warriors, but under no circumstances did they ever relinquish their sacred rights. They not unfrequently possessed large landed estates, the title to which remained inalienability in the family. Such, for example, was the Kihaka estate in the district of Kona, Hawaii, which was the gift of Liloa to Lianui, and which remained with the descendants of that eminent high priest until the days of Kamehameha I. Such as warrior priest of goodly possessions was Keoleoku of Waipuna Lei. He was the high priest of the temple of Manaini at Koa La Lele, which was consecrated, as before related, in the time of Liloa. Although for some years he had seldom officiated except on important occasions, preferring the quieter life of his estate at Waipuna Lei, he was greatly respected by the people of the district, and his influence proved a tower of strength to Umi. Black Clock Audio Tales is edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer in Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can contact us at pgttcm.com, on Facebook at Black Clock Audio Tales, and... Just look for us, Black Clock Audio Tales. Thank you.